Calling all product teams, UX researchers and app designers, we're giving away a free license to 11FS Pulse for a whole year. 11FS Pulse is our product research platform that holds over 7,000 of the best user journeys from every corner of financial services, all in one place. Used by leading brands across the industry, Pulse can save your team up to 90% of the time usually spent opening hundreds of different bank accounts, challenger bank accounts, and fintech accounts. All you have to do for a chance to win is book a demo with our team between now and the end of May over at 11fs.com forward slash win. That's 11fs.com forward slash win. We'll be picking the lucky winner at random on Monday, the 3rd of June. For full T's and C's, please visit 11fs.com forward slash terms. Good luck. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Ross Gallagher, Ventures Director here at 11FS. Thank you for downloading this podcast. If you like what you hear, why not recommend it to a friend? Now, this week, we're talking a new report suggests AI fraud could be on the rise. What are the dystopian use cases we can worry about there? NatWest ventures into intellectual property-based lending. Find out what this means for small businesses and scale-ups. And biometric data is about to get trickier, as new research may prove that our fingerprints are actually not unique. Oh boy, it's a scary future. We get into all this and much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 819 of Fintech Insider. I'm Ross Gallagher, Ventures Director here at 11FS, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by three great guests who are here to break down the biggest news stories in fintech and financial services. First, a big hello to my co-host, David Barton-Grimley, Fintech Strategy Director at 11FS. David, uh, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Ross. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm glad you're here. What are you uh, What are you working on at the moment? What's uh, What's front of mind for you? I'm working on all the things, you know. I know that's not an actual answer, but it's just been an extremely busy start to 2024, which is brilliant. I think it's great for our our industry. I think there's a lot more stuff going on in fintech around the world. So, yeah, very excited for the year. That's one of the things that struck me. I think it doesn't feel like there was any sort of like ramp down pre-Christmas and then ramp up. It's just like there was a pause and it's just like keep going. Um which is cool, right? I, I completely agree. So, David, great to have you. We're also delighted to be joined by Alia Mahmoud, a Global Regulatory Affairs Practice Lead at Comply Advantage. So, Alia, welcome. It's really great to have you back on the show. Maybe you can just remind our listeners just a little bit about yourself and, and, and what you do at Comply Advantage. Yeah. Hi, Ross. It's great to be here. Um, well, for the past 16 years, I've worked in financial services, uh, starting off in legal and then risk and compliance. I now find myself at Comply Advantage, where I work in the global regulatory affairs team. And essentially what we do at Comply Advantage is we provide financial crime detection solutions for financial institutions to safeguard their consumers and the markets. Awesome. Excellent. And we're going to lean heavily, I think, on uh, that expertise and a number of our different stories as we go through the show. So uh, I'm really glad you're here, Alia. And last but not least, it's another welcome return to Fintech Insider for Mariella Hunter, a fractional COO in the FS space. Mariella, welcome back. Again, great to have you. Maybe again, you can just remind our listeners a little bit about... uh, what you do and a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I'm excited to be here again. Um, So I have over 10 years of financial experience in the UK and the US across various areas, including M&A, payments, corporate ventures, strategy, corporate venture capital. And I'm currently a COO, fractional CEO for venture-backed companies, um, mostly in the US, but also in Europe. And yeah, I'm excited to dive into today's topics. I love that. What an exciting space. Um, and yeah, look, we're, we're really pleased, again, that you're here to share all of your valuable insights. I think it's going to be a great show. Mind you, I've just put a whole heap of pressure on us and jinxed us. So on that note, uh, let's jump in um, and get on with the news. Uh, so our main story this week comes from Comply Advantage, uh, with a headline, New Financial Crime Report Highlights AI as an Emerging Fraud Risk. So the finding forms part of Comply Advantage's annual State of Financial Crime Report, which is now available to download on their website. And the report finds that while companies are investing heavily to combat the risk of AI, 60% of customers still feel uncomfortable with their bank using it. So 66% of companies feel that use of AI by fraudsters is a growing threat. 
And 23% of customers have been victims of fraud in the last three years. And of those, 31% were millennials. Now, the report also shows that many banks who are investing in AI are not communicating this effectively with their customers. Well, Ali, I said we're going to be uh, leaning on your expertise, so I'm glad you're here to sort of uh, tell us about this one. I mean, it's, it is a fascinating report. Maybe you can just um, elaborate on some of those uh, key findings that we called out um, headline-wise, and maybe just, um, I suppose, a little bit around like what this is sort of telling us, you know, and, and why people should be uh, should be interested, I guess. Oh, absolutely. Now, um, although we're going to dive deep into the the use of AI and the fraud that we've seen um, that was reported in the, in the State of Financial Crime Report, the report itself is very comprehensive and it runs 107 pages long. And in addition, provides a lot of meaningful information around the risks of sanctions, terrorist financing because of the geopolitical situation that we are in, and provides best practices to firms. So definitely something to to read. Now, the findings that we've spoken about, about AI and fraud, is pr- primarily the use of AI as another tool in a criminal's toolbox. When innovation comes about, when there are new technologies, criminals are always the first on the scene to see how they can exploit that technology and adapt it in order to commit their offenses. So we've seen over the past few years that not only have they been been continuing with the traditional frauds using synthetic identity, identity theft and forging documents, we've also seen an increase in the use of AI to exploit people's voice to then access their accounts. And not just that, if you think about embedded finance and how financial service companies are, you know, interacting with other firms using API technologies, there's never been more points of access for a fraudster to get into people's accounts, to trick them and to essentially take their money. Not just that, but they've seen that the applications that they've made to commit these frauds are in high demand and they're actually selling those. So crime as a service is a theme that we're seeing rise and will increase as we move forward. Gosh, um, it's interesting, isn't it? Of course, AI is such a hot topic and there's so many debates either side about the the sort of benefits and maybe the, some of the disadvantages, but that sort of fraud, that that financial crime aspect is 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 really, really concerning. I think actually the example that you gave around voice and biometrics, the landscape and how we think about it in terms of security is shifting, right? Because up until recently, we really would have thought about biometrics as a really secure form of authentication. But now, obviously, with this sort of rise, I guess, in um, AI fraud, maybe we're providers are going to have to sort of rethink some of those security protocols and how they keep customers safe. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think from even from our report, you know, 87% of firms want to invest in technology in order to identify and combat these types of frauds and financial crimes. But it's, it's really important to understand that, you know, the, the, the main gateway and the main access to fraudsters getting into your account is all the phishing, the smishing, all the attempts that they make to, to, to access and gain information that they can then use to bypass traditional um, um, verification processes, just like you said, how biometrics can be exploited. Um, so it's really important. It's never been more critical for firms not only to assess the use of AI that they use to, um, as financial crime controls to prevent this, but also for them to understand their security protocols, right? The, uh, protect themselves against cybersecurity threats, which we've seen particularly in the cryptocurrency, crypto asset space. So um, a recent report that I was reading showed that the crypto, cur- the crypto asset industry is more at risk from AI being used by fraudsters. And if you think about all the digital channels that those firms use to offer crypto services, it makes sense that those digital channels can be hacked and used to access people's wallets. I really like your point about this just being another kind of tool in these fraudsters kind of tool belts and how it sort of works hand in hand with maybe some of those less technologically advanced, but really actually um, that sort of existential risk probably goes up sort of tenfold or whatever it is. Oh, yeah. And I mean, we've also seen them use kind of AI and generative AI to commit fraud at scale by just creating fake social media accounts. 
by creating digital footprints that are um, giving the impression of a legitimate individual or a legitimate business, but it's all fake. And because AI can be used at scale, they can make hundreds and thousands of these fake accounts instantly as opposed to where it would have taken them months and weeks. And it's really important because from a financial institution's perspective, those types of searches on social media accounts and digital footprints are secondary sources of information that they use to identify individuals apart from ID documents. Yeah, the the, the scale and I suppose the speed at which yeah. they can do these things now is just exponentially increasing. It is. Um, Mariella, I guess with your sort of fractional COO hat on, operationally, how well set up are, are, are sort of firms to, to deal with these new and evolving threats? And I mean, how how worried should we all be about um, our data, our money, etc.? Yeah, I would say some of these tools are widely being used for good. So this is AI being used to grow the businesses for customer interactions, to better understand customer data, channel interactions. And in cases like voice cloning, things like, um, you know, Speechify or Eleven Labs, you can see um, using your voice to greet customers. Every time you send an email campaign, you can use your voice to welcome them and make it personalized. But we're talking here about weaponizing AI for fraud. Um, And yet we talked about the creation of accounts, requesting payments, creating content for phishing, stealing accounts. Um, And also, um, you know, there's the deep fakes, video, voice, et cetera. Um, I would say that particularly banks and large corporates are very well equipped in terms of their data capabilities, in terms of their people capability working in fraud teams. And the biggest asset that financial institutions have is cooperation. And I don't mean just within the UK, I mean globally, because when everybody starts looking at patterns across the data and you start diagnosing and you start sharing then you know that something that hasn't happened to you, but it's starting to happen now. You could have seen, oh, well, this happened in, um, let's say, HSBC, but it started with Bank of America clients, if everybody's sharing data. And that's an advantage that obviously fraudsters don't have. It's not necessarily in their interest to cooperate. So I think that's a, um, uh, a key asset. And I think in terms of smaller technology companies, while their technology could be you know, quite impressive in terms of their tech stack, Typically, companies that are just starting out will not necessarily prioritize in terms of their investment and their roadmap, investing in fraud and security tools. And that's just natural, right? They're starting to grow their business and the focus is growing revenue, attracting and retaining clients. So with that, the awareness, the tech stack, the level of security, the training of the people is not necessarily there. So I think there's a little bit of way to go there. So it's always helpful, even the most savvy people when it comes to fraud, to know, you know which companies are you dealing with and what data are you sharing with them? Because there will be different levels of sophistication. I completely agree. I absolutely love the point that you made about um, that, that sort of need for global collaboration. And actually that that is a massive tool in fending off um, some of these threats and some of these attacks. Is that, does that precedent sort of exist today? Is that something we can be confident that in sort of happening or is that something where actually we'd need to see some big steps forward to actually start to counter some of these? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's de- there are definitely conversations and consortiums being formed between public private sector organizations to share data. But there needs to be more from a kind of governmental um, legislative angle in order to give clear guidelines that if data is being shared for the purposes of identifying fraud or sharing information about known fraudsters, that that can be shared beyond data protection laws um, or any restrictions of data sharing. And I think it's the data sharing laws that do create the complexity with sharing data, even if it is for legitimate purposes. And a lot of firms are quite wary around what data they do share. Um, So I think we need to see more from public sector level um, in order to support the private institutions with their data sharing. Yeah, that's a critical point, isn't it? There's almost like a regulatory lens to facilitating that type of of collaboration. And then DBG, one thing that I'm keen to sort of um, emphasize, I suppose, is what Mariella said about there's huge upside also um, for AI. I don't necessarily know that um, en masse when we think about some of the downsides that we're really thinking in terms of like AI fraud and the risks to us personally. I mean, there was a uh, 
Uh, JP Morgan's head of asset and wealth management, Mary Eros, recently told the World Economics Forum that they get around 45 billion cyber attack attempts daily. So this is huge. This is real and it's not going away. You know, if anything, it's going to get a lot worse. And I suppose there is a meta step back question about what happens to the open internet if regulation cannot actually um, step in in time to be able to put these controls in place. I mean, as Mariella was saying, yes, the communication network is there, which is incredible. You know, those 45 billion cyber attack attempts are being fended off. So yes, it's brilliant. Um, but looking into the future, the open internet at least does look a little bit uh, bleak in some senses. But one thing I found very, very interesting about the um, report finding was actually the way that customers view this. So the statistic that um, 23% of customers had been victims, but actually 60% of customers still feel uncomfortable with the fact that banks are using AI to combat fraud. Now, that's extremely interesting, right? Because in some senses, that's very paradoxical. Um, and it does show that wherever the AI is being deployed, whether it's for good or for bad, people feel deeply uncomfortable with these models. Yeah. I mean, one in four consumers reported to us that they're not comfortable with their banks um, using AI. But I think this is a great opportunity for banks and financial institutions to educate consumers, going back to Mariella's point, explaining to them how they're using AI to keep uh, consumers safe. But also, I think when it comes to automated decision making that can have a direct impact on a consumer being able to access their account or make transactions, that's where that consumer concern comes from. Not really understanding how banks are using AI to profile you or to make decisions on how you can use your account. And that needs to be explained as well to individuals, not just from a consumer protection perspective, but also from a regulatory data sharing perspective, you need their consent in order to do profiling and making and make automated decisions on them. So I think banks and FIs should jump on this, use it as an opportunity to explain to consumers how they are protecting them and also any friction that a consumer might face uh, as part of their kind of user journey where transactions might be blocked or additional questions are asked, that friction is actually a good thing because it's the financial institution trying to get comfortable that you are not a victim of fraud. That's the key point for me, isn't it? I mean, context and understanding are important. And I think it's incumbent on these institutions to bring customers on the journey um, and really help build their understanding around where they're using AI and what those benefits are. Alia, it's a, it's a an incredibly interesting report, an incredibly interesting topic. I think it's one that will have our listeners thinking and talking. I think it's one that we could probably talk about for the whole rest of the show, but there are other stories that we need to cover. So I am um, going to move us on, but thank you for coming on um, and, and sort of breaking it down for us. Our next story comes from AltFi with a headline, NatWest Ventures into Intellectual Property-Based Lending. So this new offering from NatWest Group targets high-growth businesses uh, for businesses unable to secure traditional growth funding. NatWest is partnering with IP valuation tool Ingot to assess whether their underlying IP assets could be used as collateral instead. Their aim is to provide access to growth funding to businesses with unconventional or intangible assets. And Ingot CEO welcomes the new partnership, saying it puts, quote, emphasis on a business's intangibles, which have often gone ignored, rather than relying on personal or tangible assets. Mariella, I'll come to you first on this. Um, it sounds like this could actually be genuinely a game changer for startups and, and high growth businesses looking for funding. What's your sort of take on this? What's your reaction? Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned startups there. Um, and I think it would be helpful on that basis is to break it down into three parts. So the first one I would like to do is what is it? So we'll see it's not for everyone. And then the second, how does it work? And then thirdly, you know, who is this really for? So in, in terms of what it is, and I think you touched on it, is asset-based lending against the IP, the intellectual property, um, that being a subset of the intangible asset class. Typically, for, for particularly tech companies, biotech companies, it could be a more than a third of the market value of the company. So it has huge potential. Now, the assessment of eligibility of standard lending options still applies. So don't think of it because you have hugely valuable IP, you still have to go through this standard lending evaluation. And the lender may decline the application if it doesn't meet a high growth business lending criteria. So that's still the case. Now, the asset-based lending against inventory, 
plant equipment, property, investment, receivables. That is well known, is well established. I think we know that space quite well. The question here is with IP, how do you value with confidence to get that um, you know, confidence from a lender perspective that you're, you're um, able to extend that loan? And that's where Ingot comes in. So Ingot has a, a, an interesting range of solutions to manage the IP. It has the, their knowledge base, so you're able to put in, um, I'm going back, to, I know this is financial service, I was going to say biotech, but if you're a fintech and your IP is, um, I'll stick to the context of AI, you happen to have an AI bot that is an expert in wealth management, and that's your IP, you could now use um, Ingot's knowledge base to get an estimate of the value of your IP because they have that knowledge base, but also they have comparables. And so with that, it generates a report that helps you understand what is the value of the IP that you have from a reliable source. So it's not you as the, as the, as the company saying, here's what I think the IP is, but now it's officially you know, generated by Ingot. And this is the, the partnership that NatWest has with Ingot in order to obtain that valuation. But, you know, this is... This is coming back to what is the actual underlying asset, which is the patent, the trademarks. It could be trade secrets. It could be a process that you have that is quite unique. But this is debt financing. This is not equity. It's a secured loan, meaning you guarantee your loan against the IP. What is interesting here is if, if you eventually in the future have a, a, a guest from Not West, is to explain, is it all the IP? Is it fully locked in? Uh, and what is the treatment? How does it compare to other lending options? Because back to the startups, you have multiple lending options. When is this right for you? And this is now coming to your question about the startups. This is a product for scale-ups that have proven value in IP. So meaning you can go back in your cash flows and you can see the cash flow and the value generated by the IP over time in order to prove it. So if you're just getting started, you have one year of cash flows, two years, it's probably not going to be the right solution for you. But more importantly, especially if you're a tech startup, up to 80 or 90% of your value could be in that IP. So if you think about it, you are giving the IP collateral to the lender and they're locking it in. So you have to have absolute confidence that you're able to repay back that loan. Otherwise, you don't own it. And if you are back a scale up and you're eventually looking for VC lending or perhaps an exit, think about how that looks if your IP is owned by someone else. So it's not necessarily for everyone, but it's an interesting alternative for the lender to say, hey, I cannot give you a loan at the moment. You don't meet the criteria, but you do happen to have IP as collateral that we can use to extend that loan. And therefore, your option of uh, lending is now uh, augmented as a result. That was a really superb, thorough sort of breakdown. I almost feel like ending the story here, but I won't, <laughs> I won't keep going. Um, but no, that was awesome. I think um, in terms of setting out what are some of those constraints in terms of who this is right for, what some of those upsides are, and also what are um, some of those sort of trade-offs and risks, that was awesome. I think it'd be good to sort of double-click as well on um, what some of those uh, risks were, because I think they're super important. But DBG, look, I know um, you and I are both sort of super bullish on the like innovation in the SMB space, and I know it's something you've looked at quite a lot from like an embedded perspective. If nothing else, this is another route into financing, albeit debt financing, for particular businesses, right? So I suppose on that level, it's it's a good thing in terms of access and, and, and all of that. Oh, 100%. I mean, if you think about a lot of the, shall we say, wicked problems that exist in the world at the moment, so AI is one of them, healthcare, climate change, anything like this, developing IP in these spaces is extremely costly, takes a lot of time. Raising money is extremely difficult. Your fundraising rounds can be very, very far apart. I mean, I don't know, imagine you're building some kind of new rocket engine, for example, right? Just imagine the cost of developing the IP, testing it, retesting it, and trying to figure out how to raise capital within those funding rounds is, is, exceptionally, is exceptionally difficult. And, you know, you could make the argument that how easy it is to get access to 
um, financing in some of these sectors is very important to the competitiveness of the UK economy. In some senses, if you think about how in the UK we are trying to pivot ourselves around these themes like AI and health tech and fintech, etc., this could be very interesting. Now, you know, I'm not familiar with um, what it is that Ingot is able to do, but if you actually look on Ingot's website, some of the case studies they have are very, very interesting. So, an example of a company that has been spun out from a university um, is a is a classic example of this. You have some signals from the research that you have done that, yes, you know, this is a viable option. The growth potential of the solution could be absolutely massive. I mean, some of these, some of these projects, the growth potential is, is potentially transformational. Um, I, you know, think about things like nuclear fission, for example, the potential return over time is, is, is huge. And yet there will always be a need for gaining access to liquidity after the initial IP um, has been developed. So the kind of the, the way I thought about this was, you know, it has always been so fundamentally difficult for, shall we say, the market, as in VCs, investors, whatnot, to be able to value certain types of IP that take a very, very long time to develop. And yeah, I mean, like a bank, wow, would a bank fund that? Unless you're able to find a way to put a dollar value on what that IP is, it would always be extremely difficult to do so. So I think this could potentially be very exciting. And as you say, from, from an embedded finance point of view, being able to bring in an alternative data source. And I also just love in some ways that this is NatWest doing it. I mean, NatWest do have a, a wonderful history of making partnerships with various different businesses to bring new products to market. Um, so I think one to watch to see where this goes. I agree with you. And I think actually um, what's really nice about the examples that you gave, like nuclear fission and stuff, um, is the bit I think that people often miss when we think about um, expanding access to funding to SMBs as a sort of long term. We all benefit, right? And that's a great example when you consider what are some of those socioeconomic benefits outside of just um, the businesses itself. Completely agree with you as well about um, NatWest and some of those partnerships where we've seen with like Kogo, where you're looking at what is the... Um, the impact on the climate of purchases and all of that sort of stuff and, and the positive impact there. Um, and then, Alia, I suppose with your sort of, um, your old like legal and risk hat on, the reality is, and I think Mariella touched on this, um, but worth sort of double-clicking a little bit, this isn't something that um, businesses, even if they fall within that category of this feels right, should be entering into um, sort of blindly, they should really be thinking about, is this right for us? And, and and what are those sort of risks and considerations? Exactly. Like they really need to think of whether debt capital is the, the route they want to go down, because even if they're high growth and they're in that scale, scale up stage to get patents and trademarks to secure those is costly. You'll need specialists to work with you on it. And you need to be very confident on your, the IP itself um, and the value that you can derive from it. Um, so it's not an easy route to take for, for funding. Um, but I, and I love the kind of whistle-stop term, Mariella, you gave on who should do it and, you know, what, what it's about and what the risks are. What, what I like about NatWest is that, like, NatWest is that it calls, it's your UK high street bank. You'll have people who've, you know, they've got their first account with NatWest, their salaries are going there. They've got their first mortgage. And I really like the way they're supporting the, you know, SME business space in the United Kingdom, because we do want to attract startups. We want them to grow. We want them to scale and be high growth. It also pushes innovation as well, because if you are going down the route of securing capital based on your IP, you're going to work harder on making it innovative and making it something that will have a good social um, impact on the communities around you. So I think overall, it's a great thing. And it's not a new concept. Back in 2013, um, the, the UK government released a toolbox for firms on what is IP finance and, and how they can go about offering it. So it is something that, you know, the UK government has supported for a long time. We're just seeing high street banks now start to adopt it with NatWest leading the way. Oh, I love that point that this type of financing being available almost creates that virtuous circle. And I yeah. think that's an excellent, excellent point. Um Mariella, sort of back to you for a final word on this one. It's picking up on Alia's point about, you know, maybe NatWest being the first sort of like main high street bank to do this. Do you think this is, and huge kudos to them for doing it, right? Um, to David's, to David and, and Alia's point. Do you think this is something that other high street banks are going to be watching with interest? Do you think this is, if it goes well, something we should see sort of, you know, become more mainstream across those uh, those high street brands? Yeah, definitely want to watch. Um, but I, uh, 
I mean, now, now Western is a really good position because even with with or without IP-based lending, they have such a broad range of services to help SMEs to scale across, you know, their complementary businesses. They have um, within ventures created an ecosystem that can help multiple businesses irrespective of their sector. And all of that creates this um, um, flywheel of value for companies. So I think they're in a very good position, irrespective of the IP-based lending. This just makes it a little bit better. Yeah, this is definitely an area to watch. I will say it, it comes with certain expertise. So I'm pretty sure that with NatWest and their sophistication, they would have developed uh, within their teams as, as a unique capability to offer this. And so it's not necessarily just a product. It's what's happening behind the scenes to execute and monitor this type of lending. So uh, it's not necessarily for, as I say, everyone, uh, but I'm pretty sure some banks are monitoring and looking to jump in. Um, in the U.S., there's very few. This is quite a boutique-type service, but um, I know uh, Avon River Ventures has it and uh, Green Capital Funding, and they have the ability to have industry and sector expertise. So they know exactly what good IP is, they know what to expect in the valuation. And when a company comes in and says, I'm interested, they know exactly what to look out for. And, you know, Engot is greatly positioned, but the the people expertise is, is another huge component here. Yeah, I, I really like what Mariella said. And it's also like the credit risk that comes about with giving out um, loans based on IP, because it's not just kind of the fair value of the IP itself that firms need to assess. They also need to understand what would be the valuation in a liquidation um, scenario or in a financial distress scenario. And there are not many avenues or markets um, for IP liquidation or sales of IP either. Um, and then another credit risk area that you know a lot of banks will be wary about is if you think about IP that, that that's linked to a brand, a brand's reputation um, can have a direct impact on, on the value of the underlying IP. And it's very easy to get caught up in a bad press storm um, and a brand being impacted that would have a direct result on capital liquidity requirements on banks. I do think that's a super point. We're almost talking about sort of NatWest as the sort of first mover in this space are going to be building their own IP or like in the IP lending space and sort of, um, yeah, building their expertise in this space and sort of stealing a march, which is great, right? Which is exactly what should happen um, given that the, they are the first movers. Um, definitely want to watch, as I think a few of our panelists um, have said, I think universally we're quite excited about it and one we'll, we'll definitely keep an eye on. Um, I am just going to take us to a quick pause just here. So uh, we will be back with you very shortly. Calling all product teams, UX researchers and app designers. We're giving away a free license to 11FS Pulse for a whole year. 11FS Pulse is our product research platform that holds over 7,000 of the best user journeys from every corner of financial services, all in one place. Used by leading brands across the industry, Pulse can save your team up to 90% of the time usually spent opening hundreds of different bank accounts, challenger bank accounts, and fintech accounts. All you have to do for a chance to win is book a demo with our team between now and the end of May over at 11fs.com forward slash win. That's 11fs.com forward slash win. We'll be picking the lucky winner at random on Monday, the 3rd of June. For full T's and C's, please visit 11fs.com forward slash terms. Good luck. Welcome back to the show. Now, before we get back into the second half of the news, a note to go check out our most recent FinTech Insider Insight Show. Now, in this episode, I spoke to some great guests, including the president of Robinhood UK and the CEO of Carmilla to discuss the tricky issue of trust in financial services. We all know the industry has suffered a bit of a trust issue, uh, especially in the wake of the financial crisis. But a lot of work has been done and continues to be done to rebuild that trust with customers. So we had a great discussion around what trust really means to customers, how financial services providers earn it, and most importantly, how they keep it. So do go check out that one in our podcast feed. It's the one just below this. Uh, now let's get back to the news. Our next story comes from Fintech Global with a headline, MasterCard launches, quote, small business AI. We're back to AI. So MasterCard's small business AI is an inclusive artificial intelligence tool designed to deliver real-time customized assistance to SMBs. 
It will help business owners navigate various challenges by providing relevant and timely guidance, ensuring they stay ahead in their respective industries. The tool is being developed with Create Labs to ensure the needs of smaller businesses and entrepreneurs are also being met. A statement from MasterCard says the tool, quote, aims to create mentorship at scale, offering always-on advice and an inclusive set of sources. Small Business AI is scheduled to roll out later this year, initially in the US and then worldwide. Well, DBG, I'll come to you uh, first for your take on this one. What was your uh, what was your reaction to this story? Look, I mean, this isn't the first time and, and certainly not the last time that we're going to hear a financial institution or a payments provider or anybody in our sector launching a chatbot. Um, and I think a couple of things on this. I think that businesses need to understand that when it comes to generative AI, a lot of their customers actually have some similar kind of tools, right? You know, a business can just go on ChatGPT and ask some of these questions. And, you know, we've done tons and tons of research with small businesses over the years around, you know, could we launch a chatbot if we're a bank? Or could we launch advice if we're a bank? And what you hear from businesses time and time again is that they will only use those services if the results that they get are specific and actionable. This is very important for businesses, right? Because they're very, very time poor. Very often, if they genuinely are very, very small businesses, they're they're founder-led. And the founder, you know, very often either believes that they can or could do and go and find the information themselves. So I think, as always with these things, the devil is in the detail. Is it actually able to to take action for the actual end customer? And, And one of the wonderful things about generative AI is that the technology is there to be able to do that. So if you were to train an LLM, for example, on MasterCard's knowledge base, if you were able to maybe rectify a problem, or if you were to route the business to a an agent immediately and provide the value there, then great. Whereas if it is just a chatbot where you you know ask a question uh, and it just you know regurgitates something from MasterCard's knowledge base, I would question as to whether that is the um, the the right way of doing it. And and over the years, we've seen all sorts of chatbots launched like that, trying to do those kind of general knowledge base uh, based responses. And we don't see adoption, you know, do so well when you look at it that way. So they really do have to be thinking about the tech behind this. But hey, who knows? DBG, if I just stick with you, um, and I suppose thinking back to your point um, in the previous story about um, partnerships, because I think your point is really valid, right? Like, MasterCard don't need necessarily to own that sort of AI space and how it helps SMBs. Do you think there's a there's space here for a partnership and could that ultimately be more valuable to, to end users? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, they could always partner with, I don't know, an, an LLM that's looking into the payment space more often or thinking about that deeper job to be done that the customer actually has other than just working with MasterCard. But the other partnership um, element, which I think is quite interesting about this, and you're seeing a lot of examples of brands partner up with maker labs, like Create Labs, for example, to actually bring a product to market in partnership with them. And you know that's always been something uh, that we've seen in the industry. And I think that leaning on the expertise of a niche specialist firm is always a good way to go. Yeah, agree. And I mentioned in one of our earlier stories that um, AI is a real sort of hot topic at the minute. And we're, we're seeing sort of lots of buzz and lots of stories and lots of different experimentations. Ali, it'd be great to get your take on, and maybe this is me being a little bit skeptical, but does it feel like AI is kind of a solution in search of a problem at the minute, or does this feel material and something that could have a real upside for these SMBs? I, I think it really can add value to this whole kind of mentor AI generative chatbot. I, I think, especially when it comes to personalization of products. So if it, you know, if it provides, let's say, market research and kind of a- analytics around consumer spending habits and demographics of consumers, I think that is super useful for SMBs. It didn't excite me as much as MasterCard's news of their Shopping Muse generative AI tool last year, which they now have a wait list for. But even as a consumer myself, and I saw MasterCard had launched that, I was really excited because when I do shop, I will just put in a string words in Google and try to find the perfect dress. Um, so I think they are, they understand what consumers need and MasterCard have that data. They have data on consumer spends. I mean, they are a pool of data. And if they can make sense of that data and provide it to their users for them to offer more personalized products, I think that's a, a space that will add a lot of value. That's a really good point. And especially when you think about something that's unique to MasterCard that allows them to differentiate, I think that's absolutely key. Um, 
Mariella, I think it's kind of hard as well to to necessarily disagree, at least conceptually, what they're talking about, that sort of mentorship at scale piece. Yeah, just a couple of points there. Um, Some really good points by um, Ali and DBG. I think when we talk about AI broadly, there's three buckets. um, So don't want to put them all into the same. We're talking here about the co-pilots. It's not infrastructure or the application layer. And when it comes to co-pilots, which we're going to see in every professional category, construction, development, lawyers, travel. We're going to also see them for the horizontals, if you're procurement, if you're in HR, et cetera. And in this case, this is a horizontal and that it's mentor for SMBs. Banks already have chatbots, uh, particularly for support service. But you know, to, to DBG's point, uh, some of them historically have been frustrating because they're rule-based chatbots. We're talking here about LLMs. And in this case, the chatbots are only as good as the data that you feed them and the rules that you feed them. And when it comes to MasterCard, we're talking about a humongous amount of data, global, that SMBs could benefit from. And Both MasterCard, Visa, they offer data as a service because their data is so rich that now you can condense it, structure it, and put them in a really smart way into the rules of the chatbot in terms of how SMBs interact. So I think that in itself is going to be quite valuable. If this um, entrepreneur was to use the MasterCard and let's say ChatGPT4, they might find some advantages in that some of the proprietary data that MasterCard has is not available in any of the other LLMs. So there could be an edge there, which could be quite interesting. But also it will depend, you know, what tone will that chatbot have? Will it be friendly, proactive? I don't know, but, you know, it's coming from MasterCard and MasterCard is a for-profit. So there's going to be some rules there that, you know, you might want to try a few, um, but they might be beneficial in terms of getting you the support that you need. So I think it's interesting and definitely one to to play around with. But um, I will say this is a proliferation that we're going to see in co-pilots across many different areas, across banks and FIs in many different um, in many different forms. One thing, DBG, that, that comes to mind for me then off the back of what Mariella was saying is, um, and maybe, I don't know if you're feeling a little bit more optimistic now that we've sort of discussed some of the potential upsides, but ultimately I suppose a lot of the success of these is going to be driven by how sort of customer-focused they are how much that's driving this versus just sort of like FOMO and not wanting wanting to miss out on the AI boom. Yeah, and I suppose some of the reason for my, my skepticism is reading the press release a little bit. And, you know, whenever I see something like aiming to create mentorship at scale, I get that kind of general um, vibe from something. But actually, I think what Ali and Mariella were referring to is actually something even more interesting in a way. I suppose it's this idea of a MasterCard cloud, shall we say, with access to proprietary data that you're not going to get from somewhere else that will give you the data points that you genuinely need to be able to run your business. I mean, yeah, as Mariella said, those data points must be so, so, so valuable to businesses. But then I would imagine a press release that would say something like that, right? Um, You know, we've seen big software companies think about clouds of very specific types of data at massive global scale. And, you know, running co-pilots off the back of those, as Mariella said, is, is basically the future. Um, and co-pilots embedded into software, I think, is the future of software. I guess maybe one of the reasons why pessimism is I didn't get that from, from this. But yes, if that is the direction of travel, wow, bring it. Well, all right, let's test it. Mariella, if I ask you, again, just to put your sort of fractional COO hat back on, and if this is something, as David was saying, and I think you alluded to, that if we got it right, is this something that you'd encourage sort of startups, scale-ups, smaller businesses to, to actually buy? Oh, 100%. And I think we're talking here about a very large, one of the largest companies in the world, okay, MasterCard. But even if you are a really small tech startup, we're, what we're talking about here is automation. You don't need to have the level of data that MasterCard has. What you need is a caught a really good source of data. And remember, these models are only as good as the data that you put in them. And that's kind of a basic law. The second is know the rules. What is it exactly that you want it to solve for? Because there's some cases that you want people to chat with a human. So know when to hand over. What are the types of interactions? You need to be very clear on that. The other thing is that you don't have to be a tech person. 
you can use one of the ones that I was building just last week was with a custom GPT. Um, and this was to close sales. This is in the context of B2B marketing. We designed the entire flow using AI tools that are so easy to implement is low code, no code, and it automates the entire journey. So you don't have to be at the scale of MasterCard. It's just automating things, but you have to be very clear. You have to know your customers well. You have to be clear in the customer experience first. These are just tools. It's not going to replace, you know, sound business management. And then the, the second part is for corporates. Again, you don't need to have a huge team of, quant or machine learning experts. The most famous co-pilot today is Microsoft's co-pilot, right? Everybody has used it. And Microsoft has, I'm, I'm not sponsored by Microsoft, I promise. Um, they have a co a Microsoft co-pilot studio, which is a low code. So even if you already have a Microsoft account as a corporate, you can start playing around with it. Don't, don't feel you have to go with customers yet but it's so easy. You can get started. You can see how it goes, get some early feedback and then start creating um, options that and then decide which ones are really going to generate value for your customers and your business uh, without, you know, losing, you know, the, the focus and becoming, you know, a shiny object. It has to be well targeted. And uh, if it's executed well, it could be quite promising in terms of time saving and adding value to, to customers. I love that. I mean, DBG, if you're not, I'm feeling more optimistic. I get it. Devil's in the detail, like you said. But uh, yeah, but huge opportunity, huge potential. Um, all right, I'm going to move us on there to our next story, which comes from Payments with the headline, I pay my launches automated invoice platform for SMBs. So Fetch, which automates and speeds up the invoicing process for SMBs, has been launched by Singapore fintech iPayMy. According to their press release, up to 50% of invoices across Asia are paid late, uh, and Fetch wants to solve this problem. The platform simplifies and automates the accounts receivable or AR function, saving SMBs the time they currently spend generating invoices and following up on payment. It also creates, sends and tracks invoices, automated payment reminders, and late fee notifications. Fetch also enables SMBs to extend a variety of payment options, including bank transfer, cash cards, and cryptocurrency to accommodate customers' payment preferences. This new platform is currently available in Singapore, Australia, Hong Kong, and Malaysia. Um, Ali, I'll come to you first on this one and get your reaction. I mean, it sounds like it solves one of the foremost problems for SMBs, which is exciting. It does. It does. The only, and I think it will, again, it's just automating things, speeding it up um, for, for the accounts departments making sure that invoices can be tracked. And it, it's all super cool. Uh, my only concern there is there's a lot of invoice fraud that happens as well. So I hope Fetch has got some really good kind of fraud detection there when it comes to CEO fraud or any other kind of over-invoicing um, tactics that are used by fraudsters. But other, other than that, I do know this is a pain point for a lot of small businesses. It, it doesn't necessarily mean they'll be paid faster or that they would be paid at all. But at least for them, when it comes to their accounting processes, they can have everything recorded and auditable. Yeah, no, exactly right. And actually the, the fraud point, um, and especially in the context of AI fraud, um, is an important, um, an important call out. But DBG, I mean, um, were you surprised by those figures? 50% of invoices across Asia are paid late? Not at all. And actually, you're talking to somebody who's been on the coal face of this um, in literally every single one of those countries for many, many, many years. So trying to get anybody to pay an invoice, and it's not just in Southeast Asia. I mean, you know, we have the same problem in the UK. We hear about this problem in the US. This is a huge issue. And actually, as global supply chains become even worse in other sectors, this is becoming very, very difficult for small businesses to manage cash flow. And I think some of the more leading edge fintech models that we see are very innovative ways of bridging that that financing. Um, and it, I absolutely agree. This the, the real problem here, the real job to be done is that financing because having a nice shiny platform doesn't necessarily mean to say that you are going to get paid faster. But it is wonderful to see, and you know, I pay my won't be the only company out there doing this in Southeast Asia, but it is sometimes wonderful to see some foundational stuff being done, which is going to help improve so many sectors across a lot of these, these countries because it is really bad. It's very difficult to get paid. 
anyway. It's it's also difficult to just track all the all the invoices companies are sending out, um, not just from a fin- financial crime perspective, but when it comes to suppliers, there's so many risks um, dealing with a fraudulent supplier. You know, getting invoices. Um, to send money to a different account that's not that supplier's account. In fact, going back to our AI and fraud, one of the first cases where AI was used um, to commit fraud was in um, 2019. It was actually a German CEO whose voice was manipulated. And then they called the UK subsidiary of that German energy company and used the voice to direct payments to a supplier, a third-party supplier. So when you do use technology, you can kind of combat those types of risks if, if the technology is built to detect it. And I think that's a, another value add that can be achieved from this the, these types of platforms. It's incredible when you when you hear sort of examples of where that AI fraud is being used and actually how sophisticated it is. I mean, that's that's really next level. But I think I think the broader point as well, Mariella, is obviously look if this does shorten that payment cycle for businesses, then this huge upside. But actually, in the automation, there's also huge upside as well, and it frees business owners up to not spend all that time doing all of that admin, and they can refocus on other critical parts of their business, right? Yes. I don't want to sound like a dinosaur. I, I probably will. But uh, when I founded my first business, I was 20 years old and nothing like fact was available. Uh, and as a business owner, you just want to focus on running the business. Nobody wants to be chasing uh, receivables. So, uh, and you don't have that number of staff. So this is huge. I love this product. The automation is fantastic. Uh, and I don't know how many of these are included. A lot of the accounting packages have some of this capability, but Things like automatically creating invoices after, you know, uh, you have a workflow and the um, invoices are creating automatically, the automatic sending of invoices, the tracking of invoices, the automatic reminders is great because people feel bad about reminding someone, but if the software does it for you, that's brilliant. You have late fee notifications. So if it moves from 30 to 60, 90, the, the fees come up automatically. You could have, um, and I think this comes from Fetch. I think they have um, something like a decision tree. So you could offer installments uh, for the payment for certain clients. And if you want to incentivize early pay, you can offer a discount as well. So things like that are super helpful. But I think the most important thing as a business owner is that a tool like this can help you better understand your business, your clients, your segments, and just make better decisions. Things like pricing, you know, where do you want to focus on, which type of customer. So I think it's a brilliant tool. And also from iPayMy's perspective, what's wonderful about, I, I think in some cases, simple features like this, is they will then give them the permission to understand um, these businesses that use their platforms better. And then eventually, guess what? Maybe offer some credit. And this is where embedded finance comes in very nicely. Once you are able to capture a user very nicely in an ecosystem with a very simple set of features, you can then use that a little bit further on down the line. And there are plenty of case studies all over the world for businesses that 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 do that just well. So I imagine there's a very interesting road ahead. I love that point about embedded and where this goes from here, if they can really get the sort of the core of the offering as it is today sort of um, up and running and like adding value for customers. And I think actually DBG, even without sort of thinking about where this goes from here. I mean, in the work that we do as 11FS, we talk to small business owners all the time. And these points about automation, these points about late payments and not being able to focus on the bits that they enjoy about running their businesses because they're so consumed with all of this other stuff. Like this comes up time and time again, right? This is a real, real issue for businesses. It keeps coming up, doesn't it? Um, and all sorts of different types of businesses and all sorts of sizes. So, you know, you if you look at completely the other end of the spectrum and think about large multinationals, you would think that, okay, maybe they have the sort that they absolutely don't. And actually, you know, we've heard from all sorts of commercial bankers and big corporates around the world that as the businesses become more digitized, then the managing of the AR and AP becomes extremely difficult because the more real-time your payments and transactions are, the more out of sync your systems are, and therefore the more investment you need to make to bring those systems into sync. And in 2024 and beyond, I think this is one of the key themes of innovation within, within fintech is through SMEs all the way through to big commercials, 
bringing this automation. And you're seeing a few banks now really think about building API links directly into some of these systems so they could just pipe liquidity in. Although I'm sure Alia will say there's all sorts of fraud risks associated with piping liquidity into a fake invoice, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it goes back to the point, right? Like, there's so many, there's so much transaction laundering happening through e-commerce and through fraudulent merchants. Also just money laundering happening, right? You're setting up a company pretending to be a retailer, but you know, you're actually just laundering money. And if, if those are the data points that are going to be relied on in terms of this is um, a profitable industry, or these are the types of consumers, then that data is flawed because it's based on fraudulent or criminals um, that, that are abusing the system. So it's it's just really important. It goes back to the point that those controls are super important when it comes to supplier due diligence. Yeah. Absolutely. But but DBG, I completely agree with you that this is going to be one of the, the sort of key battlegrounds and more than needed because we know that SMBs are some of the most dramatically underserved um, in the market today. So um I love this story. Um, I am going to move us on to our big click energy section, which uh, regular listeners will recognize as a quick look at some more click-worthy news this week. So, David, I think you're up first. What have you got for us? All righty. This one comes from Payments. Revolut partners with tech firm Jabil to scale development of mobile POS. Revolut Reader was launched in 2022, allowing merchants to accept in-store or on-the-go payments. They're now partnering with tech firm Jabil to scale up production due to increased demand. News of this expanding offering comes hot off the heels of Revolut surpassing $2 billion of revenue in 2023, a record for the fintech giant. Quote, we strengthened our financial position, grew our customer base, launched multiple new products, expanded into new markets, and bolstered our risk, compliance, and governance infrastructure, says Revolut CEO Nick Storonsky but still no sign of a UK banking license. So my thoughts on this are, you know, I feel like I've been a bit pessimistic at times in this podcast. So I'm going to start with the optimistic. I mean, the the story of growth has in this area has really been in e-commerce, not in physical retail, right? So in the UK, there's been, I think, a single-digit decline almost every single year in, in retail footfall. I think the EU overall is seeing a very slight uptick in uh, retail footfall, but certainly the story isn't about everybody jumping to, to POS units, right? It's about e-commerce and digitization. So I think the inference from here is, no, we're growing at Revolut. We're growing very well, and we're growing, and we're beating market expectations expectations. And I think the fact that the, the quote there is all about how well Revolut is doing overall, I, I just I just don't really know what the story is here in some senses. I think it's great that they're needing more POS units. Great. Um, how is the business actually doing and performing? God, that came off really, really pessimistic. Um, but, you know, I've seen the Revolut device and it's, I think it's good. Yeah. I like I like your con- contrarian views on these things, right? We can't be all sunshine and positive about um, everything. One point I will pick out from that story is the, um, the point about the banking license. And obviously there's been huge speculation for a long time about whether or not Revolut will get um, a banking license. We had a bit of a, a debate about this in our... Um, Insight show around our 2024 prediction, so I would encourage listeners that are interested to go and listen to that. But personally, I'm optimistic, so we'll see. All right, our next story comes from Finextra. So uh, the title on this one, Santander hoovers up tech talent for digital overhaul. Uh, Banco Santander recruited 4,500 tech-skilled staff last year as it continues its digital overhaul. It has recently completed a migration of its infrastructure and now claims 95% of its processing capacity is cloud-based. It boasts over 27,000 STEM employees worldwide. There are still 400 tech vacancies, 400 tech vacancies listed on Santander's website. Uh, Fellow FinTech Insider host Benjamin Ensor recently joked about his inclination to move to Spain after Kaiser Bank's AI announcement. So here's his chance. Yeah, he's right. I mean, that is uh, a definite upside. One thing I'm super grateful for about these types of stories is the trend away from just announcing how much they're going to spend, how much these big banks are going to just throw at digitization and all of um, digital transformation. And actually now they're talking about, I saw a great one from um, Jane Opperman at Lloyd's this week. You know, it was almost how much they were investing into this was lost in all of the great progress that they'd made for customers and their sort of ambition to keep improving the experience for customers. I think likewise with this, they're really talking about you know who's the what? What's the talent? What's the tech talent that we need to deliver the next generation of um, digital products and services? So um, 
I'm grateful for that. And I think, uh, yeah, uh, all, all the best of luck to them. And um, But we can't lose Benjamin, obviously. So we we need Benjamin to stay right here in the UK, cold and miserable. Sorry, Benjamin. Um, all right, I'm now going to move us on to our and finally section of the show, which is, uh, again, a look at something more offbeat from the news this week. Now, this one comes from BBC News with a headline, Our fingerprints may not be unique, according to AI. Uh, a real theme through our stories today, as has been SMBs, to be fair. Uh, so research from Columbia University may be challenging our long-held belief that all fingerprints are unique. A team at the US University trained AI to study 60,000 fingerprints in an experiment to see if it could identify the individual. The AI bot could identify with 75 to 90% accuracy where different fingerprints belonged to different fingers of the same individual. I'm already confused. However, the humans admitted they actually didn't understand the robot's process, but the results could have a dramatic effect on forensic science and what we understand about biometric data. Um, Alia, please help. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting report, right? But I hope it doesn't impact forensic science or the way criminal investigators are using fingerprints to assess crimes because it's a research where we don't really have much detail. And it's quite it's quite telling that it literally says that uh, the humans admitted they actually don't understand the robot process. Yeah, I, I mean, there could have been so many flaws in the in, in the experiments, right? Like that we don't know about. Yeah, of course. But I, I, I'm just I don't use fingerprints in my own devices or anything. I don't like using it. But there are some countries where biometrics through fingerprint is the only way you can access your bank account. For for example, in Pakistan, that's the main way you go into your bank to even get money out. You need to use your fingerprint, and it's it's creating a problem with um, older people because your fingerprints start to fade the older you get. So or People working in chemicals industry, different chemicals can kind of take away your your actual fingerprints. So maybe eye eye biometrics would be better. A little eye scan. Totally, totally agree. Although AI fraud is going to soon render that uh, fairly insecure as well. Yes. I'm sure. Yeah, well. <laughs> um, DBG. I mean, my first reaction to this was how many people have been wrongly imprisoned based on an incorrect understanding about fingerprints what was what was your uh, what was your first reaction to reading this one yeah also terrified but but it's it's the kind of great march of technology in some ways you know the more we learn about things and the grow the more data we have things change, right? Nothing is ever static in time. And I think forensic science is one of those areas with all sorts of different ways of proving identity and criminality, which have been debunked over the years. And and who knows where this actually goes, but it is scary. I was actually reminded a little bit about a news story which came out a couple of years ago, actually, about how quantum computing, when it comes out, will essentially break every single encryption algorithm that exists ever um, if, if quantum were to scale. And when I read that, I was also equally terrified. So there are things like this, I think, that may continue to happen. Who knows? That is, I, I suppose I hadn't really thought about that, that there's going to be a paradigm shift where everything that we've relied on up until now is essentially useless. And we just have to start building from scratch. Is that what you're saying? Have I understood that correctly? Maybe some of this tech does do that, right? Like some of the more dystopian um, professors talking about um AI and you know artificial general intelligence definitely do lean in that area. I mean, I, d- I don't personally believe that generative AI has a direct path to AGI, um, but there's certainly some futurology around that area which says everything is immediately about to change. I love that you have now officially crossed over from contrarian to fully dystopian. <laughs> maybe Mariella, maybe you can you can try and end us on a more a more positive note. Oh dear, uh, I can only help but be glass half full. Um, from these experiments, let's let's face it, experiments are a basis of learning, and there's going to be um, even with all the points that Alia made, there's going to be insights there that are going to make us get more sophisticated, get better. So these are just. We have to see these things as a point in a timeline and think in the future, what are we going to do thanks to this information in terms of the controls, in terms of the decisions that we take, in terms of the intelligence and devices. 
to make sure that these things are well managed. So um, I think these experiments just need to continue, uh, need to share the data in order for, for all of us to get better. And just as fraudsters will take their take, just remember that a lot of this technology is used for so many good um, purposes, uh, for businesses to be, we talked about automation, we talked about getting smarter, we talked about customers having a better customer experience. So how can we use these things to ultimately drive more value to customers and society as a whole? And these experiments are helping to give us those insights. I love that. Thank you for saving the day. That was close. All right, look, that wraps up this week's Fintech Insider News. Um, thank you so much to today's guests. Maybe if we just quickly go around the virtual room, you could tell us uh, a little bit just where people can find out um, about you and, and, and your companies, whatever else. Um, Alia, let's let's start with you. So please do look me up on LinkedIn. Um, do download the Comply Advantage Data Financial Crime Report from the website. It will be under our publications. It has a lot of really good takeaways, industry-specific and country-specific segments um, to really get you up to speed on what's happened the year previous year and also what is on the horizon for 2024. And it will really help all compliance officers build out their compliance programs for the year ahead. And it was a pleasure to be here, Ross and David. Thanks. No, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And yeah, absolutely. Download the report. Hugely valuable resource. Um, Mariella, how about you? Yeah, also delighted to be here today. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Mariela Hunter. If we do chat on the back of this, I promise my voice is normally better than this. Uh, I just happened to come up with a cold. But uh, yeah, I look forward to connecting with uh, with you. Thanks so much for joining, Mariella. And David, how about you? I'm on LinkedIn at David BG. Great discussion today, folks. Yeah, absolutely. And as for me, you can find me at Ross Gallagher 7 on X, formerly Twitter. Uh, and thank you for listening. Uh, do join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you very much and goodbye. Calling all product teams, UX researchers and app designers. We're giving away a free license to 11FS Pulse for a whole year. 11FS Pulse is our product research platform that holds over 7,000 of the best user journeys from every corner of financial services, all in one place. Used by leading brands across the industry, Pulse can save your team up to 90% of the time usually spent opening hundreds of different bank accounts, challenger bank accounts, and fintech accounts. All you have to do for a chance to win is book a demo with our team between now and the end of May over at 11fs.com forward slash win. That's 11fs.com forward slash win. We'll be picking the lucky winner at random on Monday, the 3rd of June. For full T's and C's, please visit 11fs.com forward slash terms. Good luck.